You're listening to the Quince podcast. The Quint and the Nudge brings to you Chacha 2020, a platform for India's development sector to come together and engage on the most pressing human development challenges on the issues of gender, policy, law, climate change, social development and much more. The COVID-19 pandemic has surely triggered a crisis in India's rural sector and in the lives of daily wage workers who have been pushed to the brink of joblessness and starvation. So how can we make the rural economy self-sufficient again? This is Indian entrepreneur and philanthropist Ronnie Screwwala in conversation with Parmesh Shah, global lead of rural livelihoods and agricultural jobs at World Bank. It's nice to meet you digitally. Hi Ronnie, Ronnie, good to see you. So it's uh, a privilege to be talking to you Ronnie. And uh, uh, I think uh, let's kick off by asking you what motivated you to start Sudesh Foundation and uh, what were your early challenges when you started the foundation so there were two life cycles to this foundation one was really when we were in my uh, when i was in my 20s um, and i was just starting up as a first generation entrepreneur and you know as first generation entrepreneur all you do is get kicked around uh, it's it's really uh, something that you need to get out there in the trenches uh, and i think very early when one started the company the the introspection was that i i just felt intuitively that about 10% of whatever we would make we would like to give back at that particular stage we didn't have any profits we didn't think we were going to have profits for quite some time um so the, the first thing that happened is we had a 10000 square foot office and i put 1000 out for a crash old age home uh 2 3 years later I had the first employee and she came from the raigad district in rural maharashtra so one fine day she said look this is lovely we had about 300 people in our staff in our company and actually they were all very excited because it was almost like we had this ngo right there in our midst so it was 300 people kind of owning that ngo and that was a phenomenal cultural moment for everybody so this first employee told me why don't you drive with us to raigad and see we have a lot of water and sanitation problems there and we did that and that's when our journey started into rural india where we looked at a very small cluster of about 39 villages at that particular point in time mainly focused on water and sanitation many years later um close to about 2012 when we uh, when my wife zarina and i divested from our company utv to the walt disney company that's when uh, we were sort of at this crossroad to figure out what did we want to do both with our lives and you know with our foundation and i think zarina went out to do a teach for india course came back after 10 days and said i'm going to join teach for india and i was very worried so i said wait a minute you can't go join something we were our own ngo she said no 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 it's too small i want to go join teach for india so i think i i then after what uh, till date for me at least is the is the is the most expensive retention uh, statement line that i've done for any person where i said listen why don't we think about lifting a million people out of poverty every 6 to 7 years so she kind of looked in at me and said are you kidding and i said no i think we'll have to make it work so all of 2013 we both met about 300 400 ngos across india one of our biggest inspirations was in bangladesh with brack uh professor faisal who's just recently passed away and at the end of that uh we came to a conclusion there were three or four things that we wanted to build one we wanted to build our own execution foundation we didn't want to cut a check we wanted to be actively involved and build 
literally on an entrepreneurial basis in the not-for-profit sector. Two, we were very clear that everything is connected, water, sanitation, health, education, and therefore it needed to be a 360-degree approach. Third, for me, scale was obsessive because as an entrepreneur, that's what I was, so, you know, we can do it with 20, 39 villages, but we picked a large geography of about a million people and 2,200 villages. Right now, it's about 600,000 people and 2,200 villages and six, seven blocks in Raiga. So that was the scale element. And the last one was that we wanted to look at a six to seven year agenda after which we would need to move out of that geography, having made permanent change. Because one of our, one of our learnings in that one year of research was incredible amount of great work happening. But many people were doing the same thing. If you were in a school or sponsoring a school, you were there for the next last 20 years. And my first question to some of them was, okay, but in 20 years you've been working in the school, you should have made some permanent change and moved on. So that was our learning. And that's how pretty much it started. So Ronnie, what is the model like now? Can you explain? Like we are talking about holistic integrated rural development. So from your experience of so many years, what is the model now looking like, which you yeah. would like to do it somewhere else after six years? You said a six year cycle. So six what is the ingredients of this model which Absolutely. you are talking about? Yeah, and I think the model is something that we also want to document that it's replicable by other people. But I think the one line objective for each of that was number one, in water, every single of our household would have a tap over two taps inside each home. And I know we debated that a lot because a lot of people said, okay, we're solving for the water problem in any case. Spring water, rainwater harvesting, wells in, in Raigarh and the Western Plateau is, is a problem because water, once you do that, the wells dry up. So how do you find that? But to us, putting the two taps inside each home was the penny dropping moment for our community because then they really felt empowered. And a lot of people told us, wait a minute, the consumption of water will go up the minute you put it into a tap into a house versus a stand post. But actually it's been quite the reverse because responsibility seeks it. So our one line on water was two taps inside every home we would be in. Two, an attached toilet. That was the tick for sanitation. Three, in education, we would work with the 1200 schools and the 800 Anganwadis in our geography and work with them on almost all the pluses, meaning we didn't want to go out, reinvent and build our own schools. We would work with the teachers, we would work with the principals, we would work in subjects primarily based on English, chemistry, computer, maths, building a library and career counseling. In health, we focused on three aspects, anything that affected more than 1% of our community. And that was one, eyesight, everything with eyes and special care. If you're hearing impaired, visually impaired or speech impaired, that was one part. The second was the entire prenatal and postnatal care. So almost from minus nine months to plus five years and that entire demographic. And the third for us was anemia and malnutrition. The holy grail for us in this model is livelihood. So we look at our entire geography as a GDP equation. We can't look at it as a per household because the minute you look at it as a per household, I can't solve. There are many households in a village that don't own land, don't have a working member, and how do you therefore take their income levels from 50,000 rupees to our goal of 4 lakh rupees per household per year, unless you look at a holistic model. If I inject dairy and if I inject cattle and cows, if I don't have a chilling plant every nine kilometers and then a dairy output deal, then nobody's going to do dairy. So where is the marketplace being created? Where is the entrepreneurship ecosystem being created to support the demand that we would do in agriculture, in skill development, in, in all kinds of dairy, live poultry? But livelihood for us is we need to quadruple the level of income per household in our entire geography, because that's when we feel that they will feel in control of their destiny, not need us anymore, 
tell us to thank you and off we'll go. I don't think we'll do a permanent exit, but if you're holding the hand right now, we'll hold their little finger so that we don't feel anything gets zeroed to what we've done. But most and our core of our model is the village development committee. We don't enter a village unless they form their own village development committee. So they own every single change and we work with them. Uh, so I wanted to ask you is that a lot of things to do with market require a lot of other players to be in, into this ecosystem which you are trying yeah. to create. So yeah. how are you working with others in the market system? Like you talk about chilling plants. You are not going to set your chilling plant yourself. Someone else is going to set that chilling plant there and run it. So explain to me how do you work with the government on the other side, on the schools and all, and with the market on the livelihood side? How do you do that? So on the market and the livelihood right now, it is all about creating our own entrepreneurs. So actually, the, the uh, SAG groups and the women groups actually are very happy to look at distribution of some of the situations. When we look at dairy, the chilling plants are actually entrepreneurs from and within that community. We may fund them for a chilling plant and then they have to go out there. They have their transport system. Somebody has a tempo, somebody has a van, somebody has a bicycle, somebody has a scooter. And he goes out household to household and figures that out. Um, a large chain maneuver. So when like we have uh, casual entrepreneurs. So what we do is we buy in bulk. We then let them process it. And then we buy it back from them at a certain price so that they are not affected by the fluctuation of the prices and they get a good income. Our criterion with them is that you need to do it 365 days of the year and be a permanent entrepreneur because otherwise these are all seasonal things. The mindset of the rural community is I'll do it for two months and three months. When you do paddy, it's for two, three months. When casual is the season is January, February, March, so I'll do it for two, three months. How do you get them to do that? And second, how do they create employment? So second criterion for us, for our entrepreneurs, both for a chilling plant or in dairy or in animal husbandry and or in cashews was you need to create another 10 jobs while you're doing that. So that's been the overall push for where we go there. In the first four years of our working from 2013, I think we had very little government interaction. Having said that, they've been extremely supportive right from the beginning. We don't as an NGO want to and do not take any money directly from the government. So we facilitate grants, we facilitate whatever has to go to the community for what they want to necessarily do. And part of our exit strategy is that when we move out in schools, when we move out with water and sanitation, when we move out even in health, we'll need the government to carry on with what they were doing, albeit at a much higher level of interface. So that's been our work with the government. So if you were to describe the three key impacts, uh, what you have seen till now of the whole approach over these years, what would they be? You know, one benchmark and report card we do have uh, is, is uh, in, in education, where our one goal was that 100% uh, of our kids in our geography would complete the 10 standard, and at least 50% of them would pass in first class. And we had, a, we had the, the base level for us was 40% of that was happening. So 40% of the people were completing 10 standard, and 40% of them were so I think those were the, the, the benchmarks that we've moved the needle on. And that's been a strong one when it comes to education. Uh, I think the second one a barometer for us has been actual reverse migration. And I know today that's a huge challenge because, because of COVID, you know, the visuals that we all see are people going back. Because, but I do believe that this migrant population in many countries, China has its own issues and also has a strong migrant population. India had a strong migrant. It's neither urban nor it's rural. It's one of the most often communities overall. So for us, in our 100,000 plus homes, in our 600,000 people geography, 
30,000 of the homes are people who are migrants. In the last 45 to 60 days, almost 20,000 of those 30,000 homes have been reopened and the migrants have come back. So how do you deal with reverse migration? But before that also, people who went out into the cities and why were they coming back? Because water and sanitation was now given. The schools had got to a better place and they actually had an option for livelihood. And I think the third impact for us would be really the income change that we've done because that's when people feel I'm in control of my destiny. From about the seven to 10,000 entrepreneurs that we've created to the agri-economy that we've been able to take forward and the animal husbandry. If we can see that on a GDP basis, we are contributing between you know, 70 to 100 crores of augmented income GDP in our geography, measurable every year. That's very, very impressive. That's a very good metrics. And I hope uh, all the social entrepreneurs start uh, calculating uh, their augmented uh, value add in the same way. I think this is a very interesting way of looking at it. And that comes from your entrepreneurial uh, kind of DNA, which you bring into uh, to social and rural development. That's very impressive. So I would now share some of our experiences of the World Bank uh, uh, briefly. Yeah and draw some kind of parallels between what you are doing and what we are doing, and then move to the current situation, which is on everyone's minds uh, right now on how do we use these models and invest in these models so that uh, the kinds of issues we are seeing right now are really tackled at the roots itself. So World Bank started working on uh, uh, this rural development uh, way back in 2000. And uh, we also went through a journey of learning from all the models. And it's very interesting to see that BRAC is on your uh, uh, list also. And we went and talked to Professor Yunus, BRAC, uh, and our own Amul model, Dr. Kurian, and uh, uh, also Sarvodaya and Sri Lanka. We looked at all the South Asian models where you had seen some sustainability of a very strong kind in terms of things sustaining for a longer period of time without external intervention. And we were very keen to see how we can develop and support those kinds of approaches. You know, the World Bank supports governments in creating, uh, enabling environment, ecosystem, and institutions to make this kind of development happen. So in 2000, we invested in Andhra Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh, and Rajasthan in about uh, 20 districts very intensively. To, and we, from the experience we looked at, there are four things which were very important. They looked at creating high quality social capital in the villages. So it's not just doing projects one by one. It's trying to create communities own institutions, yeah. communities own processes, communities own values like self-help and create institutions which are more value-based from the beginning. The second was, to really not stop at social capital, invest in creating some kind of financial capital for these households and communities, and then convert the financial capital and marry it with the human capital, and then really transform the social capital into economic capital. So, so, so we, we, we really looked at women as an agency because that's what experience was in whole South Asia that wherever women were involved as an agency, they were producing very different outcomes. Yeah. So it was the self-help groups, which I think you are also working with, but not just self-help groups, but federating them to build a higher level institution, self-management institution of the women. So 
currently, if you look at that, now uh, we then went to Bihar and Jharkhand in 2007 with the same approach and invested in very high quality social capital for now from 2007. Now it's like almost like 13 years. We are now working in the eastern part of India. And together, if you look at, we have now 350 million women mobilized into self-help groups all over the country because World Bank works on scale. As you have scale aspiration, we also have scale aspiration. And the institutional approach was that we don't have huge amount of external people doing it. We need community institutions doing it all the time. So we have 350 million women. We have almost like 7 million self-help groups. And we have about 350,000 community level functionaries now working all over India. And I think uh, I like what I'm seeing in your approach is that you are looking at a scale aspiration to create that 100 uh, crores additional value of GDP. And I think that's a very interesting metrics there. And uh, what we see now in India is that these poor women have $2 billion of their own savings. Yeah. They have mobilized almost $36 billion of commercial credit and loans. And they are running a lot of micro enterprises and enterprises of their own. And then the farmer organizations and then producer companies so that they interact with market on a very large scale. So I think uh, this kind of a model has traction from the government side. We have almost like 3,000 young professionals right now from all the bright institutions of the country working on these programs. So it's not just the typical uh, people who would come from social science. It's the people who are MBAs, people who are technical, coming from agriculture universities, coming from all kinds of disciplines, coming and working with, with communities. So, so I think clearly we are looking at a huge amount of investment in creating an ecosystem. I think we have invested in projects for very long. I think we have to invest in these scale models like yours uh, very significantly, which are run by entrepreneurial energy and entrepreneurial action, which really governs that. And and measured, uh, measured so, impact is a strong part of it, I'm sure, right? M&E is a major Yeah, impact. impact is the main thing. So I think we are measuring income, we are measuring uh, economic activity, we are measuring uh, the financial capital, which is there at the household level. And the example is very clear that in this COVID crisis, these communities did not wait for the government. Yeah. They have their own savings, their own capital. They run, they, these communities have already produced more than uh, what you call it, uh, 105, uh, 10 million masks, almost like half a million liters of uh, sanitizers yeah. and uh, 250,000 PPE equipment. And they're running almost like 26,000 community kitchens and without any support from anyone, basically, because they have the entrepreneurial energy, they have the financial capacity. And I think this kind of creating this self-propelling institutions is very, very important. I think the vision you have of getting, uh, moving from uh, exiting from a very light handholding in six years and having that aspiration from the beginning, the scale aspiration, the measurement, these are three things which are very, very important right now, which you have in the approach. And I think we need to learn lessons from that on how we invest in future into that. 
So I will move away now from that. Uh, unless you have any questions for me. No, that's not. I can see that's a very deep. And as you said, at the scale at which you are operating, this sounds like a lot of continuous impact that's been creating over a long period of time. So that must be also very rewarding. So but I think uh, it's, it's a 20-year uh, kind of an investment now, almost coming to that. And we have a big battle in the World Bank also, which normally invests in a five to six-year cycles of projects and then forgets about things. So I think from projects to creating more self-sustaining ecosystems is different. And that's why we need to finance them in a slightly different way. So if you look at our collective investment over 20 years, uh, in this, it is around $2 billion, if you look at it, you know, of across about all the states in India. And I think you will hear from the people who are talking about it, and Vijay and all the people yeah. who, who really started this in the government are going to talk after our session. And uh, so, so I think, uh, Ronnie, we want to learn, because your example is unique, that you are not only working on livelihood, but we are, you are working on health, education and lots of other things. And I, I, I like that approach because it is not a question that migrants which have gone out will come back and only work because there is economic opportunity. It is the livability. It is the access to education to their children. Right. It is the health access which will make them come back and become again see this an important option. So, so, so Ronnie, can you talk about, you're looking at the COVID crisis now. Yeah. So you have seen, uh, what are you seeing in your areas in terms of, you must have seen a lot of people coming back into the communities yeah. where you are working. Yeah. So what are you hearing and what are your, what are your suggestions on how to deal with this uh, in terms of your approach going forward? So a couple of things. I think one, I have to say that rural India has not that been badly affected by COVID yet. So in their sense and in their mindset, they understand that this seems like a global pandemic, but why should their lives and their progress slow down is something they're quite confused about. They feel curious that what's the big hullabaloo about here, and they're not that badly touched in some of our geographies. And I think in most geographies, rural India has not been yet that badly affected and hopefully should not be because it didn't get penetrated from international and didn't get penetrated there. So part of this is a good discipline. What we're seeing is an incredible amount of collaborativeness uh, as a DNA in the entire uh, hamlets and villages on one side. I think the second part is that 15 to 20% of our geography, and I think that might appeal to most other people, are the tribal and the Adivasis or whichever else, uh, you know, other the minority classes. They normally are daily wage workers. They go at bricklins, they go wherever else. They're very badly hurt because actually they have no access to daily money and therefore, they're on point of starvation. Forget about anything else. So that's a second segment that one needs to take care of. And I think we look at that problem very differently, where 15 to 20% of our people, for example, we've had to do the extra, which is really the element of uh, taking care of their food for the next two, three, four, six, eight months. And I don't mean cook food. We just give them an entire ration packet that, that can take care of it because they have zero access, zero income levels right now, and they're hand to mouth. So that's an emergency feeding. The third part, I think, is uh, installing an element of medical proactiveness overall and health awareness, which we need to do on a much more evangelizing basis. And that's what we are doing with education and evangelizing because they haven't, it hasn't hurt them enough for them to feel this is serious. And yet we need to take it, take that seriously in their minds so that it is a preventive from them. 
So there's a fair amount of that that goes on there. And the last one and the most visible one is the migration element. You know, as I said, about 20,000 of our, out of the 30,000 closed homes for us have reopened with the migrants actually coming back. For these last 30 to 60 days, if we were to speak to them, and we're speaking to many, many of them, they're not fully decided whether they want to come back and stay back or whether they might go back. And there are two, three aspects there. When we were pushing people to reverse migrate back to the villages, I think one of the biggest causes we found for people not willing to do that was some sense of pride. If I, I would use the word pride, if not ego, you've gone into the city and then you have to be, it's a defeat for you to come back for your fellow village people. This COVID has given them a situation to come back without that sense of compromise or sense of running back to the villages. And therefore, a lot of people are thinking now that I, I've got a legitimate reason to come back. Do I really want to go back? However, I think that this daily wage workers, when they go back into the city, could have a recalibration upwards of their monthly income. Because I think there is going to be a shortage of, of core staff, whether it's a drivers or deliveries, factory workers, whatever else, that filled up this daily wage worker. Wherever the shortage will mean that people will have to pay a little bit more, 50% more. Right now, they were so hand-to-mouth that that life could change. Our hope is out of the 20,000 people who come back, we can hold back 10,000 of them and give them optional income options in their place. Their kids will be a little bit more happy in school than when they left two years, five years or seven years back. And they have water and a toilet in their homes already. Because even for the people which had closed homes, when we were doing our water and toilets, we would approach them even in the city that's saying, we're doing this in your village. Do you want to get it done? And most of them said yes. So I think that's what we've experienced here, both from a medical and, and, and health awareness, from a point of view of some people, SOS and starvation, a general level of higher awareness of where this could be for the next one to two years in the migrant population. So, so I, think, uh, I think clearly the link between the rural and urban is going to be very important. And uh, so I think we, we had invested in a migration resource center in Gurgaon for all the migrants which were coming from the households we were working with in Bihar earlier mm. so that there is a, some kind of counseling uh, system as well as a remittance system which is created, which creates the link between the two. And we found that in this particular scenario, it worked quite well where uh, people were able to get counseling on how to deal with the crisis and all that uh, at this time. So Bihar government is doing something very interesting. It is registering all the migrants uh, who are coming back and is developing a skill registry. And it's linking them with all the enterprises which were already there in the villages and asking them if they would like to offer their services in terms of either working on the market side of it and other side of it so that they are able to get you know, uh, somehow organically linked with uh, the lots of economic activity, what is happening in their villages and and see how they can work on that uh, more clearly. So I think this is something we need to work very critically yeah. on how yeah. do we use uh, holistic investments to create uh, some kind of uh, permanent kind of uh, architecture to deal with the migrants as an important part of our intervention. Absolutely. Stay tuned for more episodes on Charcha 2020. You can subscribe to our playlist on Spotify and Ghana.